0: feel like I should do a Bob Dylan impression or something, but I'm not prepared to stand here and mumble about nothing in a raspy voice, (laughs) ready to preach the Bible. So let me pray and sanctify what I just said. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the great reality of salvation through the blood of the Lamb, the perfect spotless one dying for us and in our place. And we are are so glad and, and we want to honor him and glorify him we want to give him thanks for what he's done for us and we are thankful for the opportunity we have even now to study your word together help me to have a pastor's heart help me to be true to the intent of your scripture as we look at different scriptures and lord we would ask that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word and certainly we would ask that you would do that by attending it with your spirit and his power in jesus name amen if you were to ask me what I think is the worst church in all of the Bible, I would at least nominate the church of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea is a church we learn about in Revelation 3. I'll ask you to turn there with me in your Bibles. And we see Jesus treat this church in a particularly harsh way. We see Jesus is not at all pleased. He addresses the church of Laodicea with great disgust, as a matter of fact, in an alarming sort of way. And I would like us to see this church of Laodicea and see what Jesus has to think about them because we're talking right now about the death of a church. We're talking about uh, what happens when churches die so that we might not become a dead church. Well, if the Laodicean church is not dead, they're about a breath away from being dead. And I wanted you to see what Jesus, the Lord of the church, even has to say to certain kinds of churches. Look with me if you would at Revelation 3.14 where it says, To the angel, or literally to the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And by the way... If you could just insert right there, that would be Jesus Christ Himself. In light of what's come before, He's just describing Himself. He's addressing them through a messenger. says this, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Verse 16 says, So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit or spew or even literally vomit you out of my mouth. What a way to address a church. I bring it to your attention. Yes, because we're talking about the reality of churches dying. But maybe even more profoundly is something that's beneath the surface here. Not only do churches die, sometimes churches die quickly. You may want to write in the margin here... You might want to write a CF for check or look into or see cross-reference the New Testament book of Colossians. We won't take the time to go there, but in the New Testament book of Colossians, Jesus mentions the Laodicean church four different times by name. And nothing in Colossians would lead us to believe that the Laodicean church was anything but a faithful church. Nothing in Colossians would lead us to believe that the Laodicean church had any signs of death. Everything would lead us to believe it was a live church. It was a good church. So within the span of about 30 years, good church, commendable church, either a dead church or a breath away from being a dead church. So if you would, just by way of introduction this morning, have it in your minds that this is a real reality that we're talking about. And not only do churches die, sometimes churches die quickly. Now we're looking at this matter of churches dying for obvious reasons. It's because we want to be a church that's alive. We don't want to be a church that Jesus vomits out of his mouth. We don't want to be a church that Jesus Christ is disgusted with. We don't want to be a dead church. We want to be a a church that Jesus is pleased with by His grace. And so that is our aim, and with that aim in mind, we're looking, and we have been looking for the last few weeks, at a number of assumptions. Assumptions that churches make when they are dying. Assumptions that dying churches make doesn't come from one particular text of scripture, I think, uh, rather strongly, I think, you could argue uh, each of these assumptions from a historical perspective, as you see so many different churches die. Three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, excuse me, we looked at number one, the first assumption is assuming the gospel, assuming the gospel, not, not denying the gospel, but assuming the gospel. When you deny the gospel, you are a dead church, but Assuming the gospel as opposed to defending it and proclaiming it and emphasizing it is one of those telltale signs. There's something wrong here. Death is in the air. The second assumption we looked at last Sunday, and that's assuming theology. Assuming theology, and I meant theology in its most pure sense, that is the study of God. So it's assuming God we're not denying God, then we would be a dead church. But when we get to the point where we're just assuming God and what's true about God, what's not true about God, it's a sign that things are not headed in the right direction. In the Bible, we saw even last time that, that we're to do anything but assume God. And this morning, I'd like to suggest to you that a third assumption is assuming biblicity, assuming biblicity. Microsoft Word doesn't like that word very much. Uh, You might not like it either, but you can just take the right side of your mental mouse and click accept, and uh, you too will have it in your mind, and we know what we mean by it. When we get to the place where we assume something is biblical, whether or not it is biblical or not, but when we're assuming things are biblical, uh, things are headed in the wrong direction. And uh, I mentioned last time that the fourth one would be assuming doxology, which would be assuming the glory of God. And uh, being the liar that I am, I said we would finish today, and we're not even going to, we're barely going to finish number three. And uh, But I do, I hate to say promise, because then I'm really going to be a liar. I don't plan to add any more to the list. So um, I think we'll finish next time, and that would be appropriate and good. If you feel like you got shortchanged, and uh, you're not getting a real sermon because we're away from our study of Romans, uh, I think there's about a thousand sermons on www.omahabiblechurch.org. And uh, you can get one from the bookstore if you want for free there, or you can go to iTunes and find some there. So I don't mean to shortchange you, but all joking aside, um, while this isn't what I love to do week in and week out, I do feel pastorally motivated. I hope I'm always pastorally motivated, but pastorally motivated for us to not somehow be whistling in the dark and for us to to take this time and just pause and, and be reminded that churches do die And that what we do on our watch, so to speak, has an impact. And we we are taking steps toward death or we are taking steps toward life. It's important that we think about these things. It's important that we take a good sober look sometimes about what is happening. And what are we contributing to? So I wrote at the top of my notes today, be pastoral. Just really hoping and praying for you and praying for me and praying for leaders and praying for people who will come and be new that we really will not take things for granted, that we really will have eyes wide open, we really truly will think about these things. What we do matters. And history proves that what people do in churches matters. And so let's focus on this idea of assuming biblicity. That is taking for granted that what we do in the church, what is done by the church, is biblical. In one sense, assuming that what we do in the church and what is done by the church, assuming that's biblical, we take it for granted. Maybe it's we take it for granted because we're a church, you know, and, and the church is, is, is an institution tied to the Bible. That, that's true. And maybe we assume it because the pastor reads the Bible. The pastor doesn't stand up and deny the Bible, lest it is a dead church. And, and whether or not he goes on to talk about whatever he wants to talk about is another thing. But, but we do assume that the church is tied to the Bible. But that's different from assuming that we are biblical. And so I'd like to direct your attention to some signs, as I did last time. Some signs that point toward our assuming biblicity, which gives the aroma of death for a church. And the first one, the first sign of assuming biblicity, that we are biblical, is what I want to call increased gullibility. Increased gullibility. I'm going to get the harsh one out of the way first. So you all leave just loving me and thinking, man, he's kind. I forgot about the harshness earlier when he talked about churches and people being gullible. We know what gullible is, most of us. To be gullible is to be easily fooled. To be easily tricked. To be undiscerning. Easily duped. Easily fleeced. It's to be naive. And where you see Christians easily duped, you see people who are assuming that they're biblical. They're assuming that they know the truth. They're assuming that they're discerning because they're assuming they're biblical. And yet, when the hook goes in the mouth and they'll follow anything, you can know that they were just assuming they're biblical. They, they really weren't biblical. They, if they were biblical, they would be discerning. They wouldn't be so naive. And I'm just going to give one illustration of this that should serve us well. And that would be the book-buying habits of evangelicals. We're talking about the death of a church, but if you just want to look at our movement that we're a part of, okay, we're part of evangelicalism for good or for bad, okay? And so we're a part of that, and that's supposed to be the movement that would come out of liberalism and say, no, we believe the Bible is true. We're going to stand for the Bible. We're going to stand for the truth. We're going to be biblical. But if you look at our buying habits, it just points toward we are gullible. We are gullible. Therefore, we're assuming biblicity. We're evangelicals. We're biblical. And yet, here's two cases in point. And yet, we buy millions, I don't know how many times, millions and 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 maybe three more millions, I can't remember, of copies of books like the Prayer of Jabez. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, what would people think of who had any kind of biblical moorings maybe I don't know any time throughout history if they knew how many books we bought like that. We should be ashamed of ourselves. It's absolutely cr- I don't mean to beat a dead horse because it's a dead issue. It's all come and gone. Evangelicalism is on to something else now. Another trend. But you just go, you, you, you're kidding me, right? As one of my professors used to say when I went to University of Nebraska at Lincoln, he'd they, say, truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me you would never come to the conclusion that this is some kind of genie you rub, this prayer of Jabez thing. As one reviewer said, and putting words in Jabez's mouth from the Old Testament, all I wanted was more land. You know? This is crazy. But but based upon how we buy that book, it makes you think, you know what, we'll believe anything. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll embrace anything. And And we have. Because now we're helping to buy millions and millions and millions and I don't know how many millions of copies of the shack. Books a book that promotes blasphemous patently unbiblical views about God. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a missionary and a Southern Baptist and he said that a short-term mission team was sent to him of other Southern Baptists, and they came to help him as he's doing missionary work, and they were people who were handing out the shack as an evangelistic tool. And I don't think they got anything done, because I think he was trying to undo what had been done to their minds. He was trying to get some Bible poured in. And you say, well, it seems kind of harsh to mention those kinds of things. Well, it, it shouldn't. Patently unbiblical ideas about God or a genie kind of reading of the Bible and we just, we just take it all in. You know, if I haven't been rude yet, I'm going to do it now. Do you, do you know the most gullible people I know on the planet? Categorically? It's evangelicals. If I were a snake oil salesman, needed to make a buck... I got some swamp land for you. <laughs> it, you think about it. Who are the people who are the most gullible people who spend all of this money and buy all of this stuff? Well, the world knows because they buy evangelical publishing companies. They know it's us. We're the gullible people. Gullibility is a sign of assumed biblicity, We're confident about our decisions. We're confident about our book buying because after all, we're evangelicals. We're biblical. This is absolutely crazy. God doesn't want His people to be gullible. God doesn't commend gullibility. God commends discernment. And I would like you to see this in Scripture. Acts 17 is like the the text of all texts when it comes to this issue. But if you would look at Acts 17, I realize this is designed to be a negative sermon series because we're talking about the death of a church. So I'm trying to do my part and live up to the expectation. But I can't help myself to say, hey, wait a minute though. Let's have this be a reminder that, you know, we're supposed to be discerning. We're supposed to be biblical, not just assume that we're biblical even though we're not. And so this, this classic text in Acts 17 is a great one. He's talking about the Bereans. This is why we would want to say we would want to be like faithful Bereans. We would want to be discerning. We would not want to be gullible. And imagine what it would be like, if you will. The Apostle Paul comes and he's teaching and he's proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. And what happens is the people, the Bereans, they eat it up. They devour it. And yet they're discerning. And they're commended. In God's eternal word, they're named as commendable. Look at Acts 17.11 with me, if you would. Where it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. What a bummer if you're from Thessalonica. (laughs) It's kind of curious to know what's behind the scenes there. But anyway, keep reading, if you would. For they received the word. The Bereans did. They received the word with great eagerness. I mean, that right there is enough to to do a whole series on, right? Uh, What's commendable is they received God, they had a hunger, they had an appetite. Uh, They wanted the truth from the Apostle Paul, so they received it with great eagerness. That's commendable. Notice uh, he goes on to say, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Eagerness, yes. Desire for truth, yes. Yes but with one eye open. Right? Making sure this is biblical. Making certain that this represents true, genuine, Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting Bible truth. Someone said... An evangelical endorser endorses the shack and likens the shack to being this era's version or making the impact in this era that John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress has made in the past. you got to be kidding. That's evangelicals. Folks, know the Bible. Have have a desire for God's Word, a hunger for God's Word. But make sure as you have that desire and that hunger, you're searching the Scriptures to see whether or not the things you hear are right and true and sound. And that will be one of the ways we can know that Jesus is not ready to vomit us out of His mouth. Because there's life. We're commended by the grace of God. Not because we're so smart. Obviously, it's because of His grace. Please be discerning. Let's help people. Let's not become further uh, uh, further part of the problem. Let's move to another sign that points toward an assumed biblicity. This isn't a real biblicity. And that's ignorance of basic Bible doctrine. Ignorance of basic Bible doctrine. I realize these can overlap. You can keep your Bible open to Acts 17 because it's going to be the cure-all, at least for these two points, if you will. Okay. If we're a church, okay, got that taken care of. We call ourselves a church. And we assume we're biblical. It's passive. It's not active. We, We assume we're biblical. there is going to be something else that it's, that's true, and that is we're ignorant of basic Bible truths. I realize this can feed either way. Or if we're ignorant of basic Bible truths, there's going to be an assumed biblicity. One can feed the other. I understand that. But the two are going to end up going in hand in hand. And what will end up happening is this. We'll believe what we believe because we believe it. Or we will do what we do because we do it. Or, you know what? What we do is biblical because we do it. What we do is biblical because it's biblical. And this doesn't make any sense but it doesn't make any sense. But this is the rut we will fall into. If we're in the dark, we have no sense of direction. We will assume that we're biblical maybe because others have gone before us and started our movement were biblical. And since we're a church, and since we have a history and a doctrinal statement, we're passive in all of this. It's sort of assumed. What's going to end up happening is we're going to have this ignorance of basic Bible truths. I have a few illustrations, then we'll look at a text, then we'll move on. I use this a lot. Maybe it's because it made such a big impact on my life. So Some of you have heard me mention this at least a couple of times, but I'll mention it again. This assumed biblicity that shows itself in basic ignorance of basic things. A number of years ago, I went and spoke at a Christian school. I love speaking at Christian schools, I've done it many times. I go and speak at this particular school, and I was not, you know, insensitive and harsh like I have been talking about the prayer of Jabez and, you know, the shack and all this kind of stuff. I was very careful. Not to use loaded words. Very cautious. I just want it to be the Bible. Clearly the Bible. There's not already a pastoral kind of trust. Done this enough times. Go and speak to the students. And here's what I did. I talked about something that is basic, basic, basic about God. And it created such a stir amongst the students. At a Christian school, in both middle school and high school, that they asked me to come and talk to the classes individually about my view. I said, I'd be happy to. I'm so glad that they let me have the opportunity to go do that. So I went and talked to the class. And the question that sticks out of my mind that, that is so motivating to me and so telling, though, is this question. One of the students asked, did you read this in a book somewhere? Or you did you just make it up yourself? This is to their Bible class. Like, this is wild. This is I just told them like basic things, you know, like God is God, God is sovereign, He's in charge, He's in control. Chapter verse, chapter verse, chapter verse. But it was so radical that I was some freaky guy that made up this stuff. And it was it was amazing. I loved going and dialoguing with the students about these things. I documented everything, created a handout, put all these historical figures on there to show that, you know what, this is not new at all. This is like basic historic Christianity, hoping they'd bring it home to their parents, you know. It was amazing. But they were so biblical, quote unquote, that when I taught the Bible, they viewed it as something other than the Bible. It was something I made up. Points toward an assumed biblicity, which is connected to ignorance of basic Bible doctrines. Now, I'm not trying to throw students under the bus. I love students. I love going there. I love talking in the class. But think about it. They come from conservative, quote-unquote, Bible-believing evangelical churches at the school. And so I do want to throw their pastors, their churches, and their parents under the bus. And if those churches aren't already dead, they will be dead. Apart from a supernatural intervention by God, they will be dead because as soon as the next generation takes over the helm, Maybe the parents know these things. They're just ashamed to talk about them. I don't know. But the students don't even know that they're in the Bible. And before I move on to my next illustration, interestingly enough, in the first service, someone said to me, Pat, I've heard the illustration before. You need to know that that's why we're at this church. Because one of our kids was in the class. And we're so thankful to be here. He said, you might want to mention that in your next sermon. So I'm mentioning it, and I'm saying, yeah! You know? All things for the sake of the call, I guess, and we do these things. If I can use another student illustration where we assume Biblicity, and it shows itself in biblical ignorance, which is a sign of coming death, at least in the next generation, would be something else I've mentioned before, and that is this thing called moral therapeutic deism. This is where you've got sociologists, real trained sociologists, putting their findings in a book published by Oxford Press. That doesn't mean it's true, but we're not talking about uh, you know pseudo-social science. They actually did the work. They're interviewing students from all over the nation to get a pulse on where they are about different things. One thing would be their religion. And even amongst those, let me target especially those who profess to believe the Bible and are Christians. The sociologists figured out that even though these students who said they're Christians and believe the Bible, by and large, not all of them, by and large, overwhelming majority, didn't actually believe in anything like historical Christianity. So they're saying, we're biblical, we're Christians. And the sociologists say, well, what you explain as Christian isn't anything like anything that has ever been called Christian. So they came up with a new title for them. No one is saying they believe in this religion, but the sociologists came up with a new title and said, actually, most students who profess to be Christians believe in a religion that we're going to give a name, Moral Therapeutic Deism. Moral because, there are multiple factors, but moral because, you know, it's your good outweighing your bad, and that will get you to God, and He'll be pleased with that. Therapeutic, ultimate purpose is for you to feel better about yourself, ultimate purpose in Christianity. Deism, there is a God. But He certainly isn't sovereign. And He's not even very personal. He's not anything like the Christian God. Why do I mention this? Because again, they're saying, we're Christians, we're biblical, and they don't look anything like Christians. It's an assumed biblicity that shows itself in ignorance, not about complicated things, just basic things of Christianity. And they're the next generation. Again, I'm not trying to to be negative towards students. I think it's just a great evaluation because they're not learning it from nowhere to be double negative about it. Okay, one more illustration. Let me use adults. Totally different illustration. The first two have to do with people who are atheological And you might be thinking, well, as long as we're theological, then you know that's never going to happen to us. We'll never have an assumed biblicity. Next illustration, then we'll move on. How many of you have ever heard of particular Baptists? Anybody? There's a few people. Robbie, you were in the last (laughs) service. I'm not counting you twice. That's bad social science. (laughs) So... Particular Baptists, some of you have heard of Particular Baptists, overwhelming majority of you, you're smarter than the first hour, more well-read, only one, and it was Rob. So, and he's not even smart enough to get it all the first service, he comes back the second hour. Anyway, he's a pastor, so I can say that to him. All right, Particular Baptists, you haven't heard of Particular Baptists, by and large, even though there was a movement and they were called Particular Baptists, because by and large, at least by that name, the movement of Particular Baptists Is dead. It's a dead movement, at least by the name. Particular Baptists wrote some great things. I like Particular Baptists for for lots and lots of reasons. One of the things Particular Baptists were, were very committed to was the biblical doctrine of election, predestination. That's why they were, well, that's one of the reasons they were associated as particular Baptists as opposed to general Baptists. There's more involved. But the idea is they, 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 were, they were committed to this reality and issues that were related to that reality regarding Christ's death and so on. They were committed. And you know what? It's biblical. It's right. But through various means, they lost A true, genuine biblicity by being like the Bereans and being in the text of Scripture, looking at the whole counsel of God, and they were so caught up in defending this one thing and promoting this one thing that before you know it, they didn't even know it. Before you know it, the particular Baptists are denying basic Bible doctrines. And they fell into a category we know historically as hyper-Calvinism, denying things like people have to believe in order to be saved. That's a basic Bible doctrine, folks. So you can be a and assume Biblicity, You can be very, very theological and even write about particular areas of theology, but if you're not actually being biblical, you're just assuming biblicity, it's a sign of death. You know, I have to tell you, there's even something in me that doesn't even like preaching these kinds of sermons. I'll just say, if, if this is the regular diet of, okay, we're going to do this, this issue and this issue and this issue and this issue and this is, this is what we do, I would like you to, in love, come to me and say, would you please give us the whole counsel of God and get back to preaching the text? I really mean that. I really like that weird feeling I have. I think there's a place for saying, let's address this particular topic because the Bible addresses topics. But week in and week out, as a pastor, I want us to be challenged here. Yes, learning about the biblical doctrine of election and issues related to it. But I also want us to be somewhere else in the text. You know what? Unless you believe, you will not see the kingdom of God. Both are taught in Scripture and they complement each other and we can talk about how they do. Instead of assuming we're biblical. Because when we assume we're biblical... Before you know it, we're not biblical. And we have a huge problem, and death is in the air. I go back to Acts 17 again, seeing this notion of biblicity, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Let's keep going back to Scripture. Let's keep being... Alive and acting like we're alive. We have eagerness. We have life. Let's move on to a final sign of assumed biblicity, My favorite one of all because we're in the text more than in other times. Mistaking pragmatism for faithfulness. Mistaking pragmatism, which we will define, for faithfulness. When we are at the place where we mistake pragmatism for faithfulness, it's a sign that we're assuming that we're biblical, even though we may very well not be biblical. Where we're going to land in just a little while is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're not quite there yet. Let's define and explain and get ready to look at that great text. Pragmatism is doing something because it works, doing something because it gets results, and we all are justifiably pragmatists, okay? I ate this morning because it gives me energy, and you know what? Eating keeps me alive. Eating is a good thing. If you don't eat, you will eventually die. That's pragmatic. It's pretty good. Pretty good idea. Um, we work hard at staying awake while we're driving because if you don't stay awake while you're driving, you crash. You say, you're such a pragmatist. What a compromiser. <laughs> That's not compromise. That just That just makes sense, right? That's just good pragmatism. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a good thing. When we talk about pragmatism, others would suggest to us, and appropriately so, when you're talking about pragmatism, you're talking about having the ends justify the means. Having the ends justify the means. And if that doesn't make sense to you, the ends, as far as where, where your desired outcome is, the means, how you're going to re- arrive at your desired outcome. The ends justify the means. I want to lose 10 pounds by April 1st. That's the ends. Okay, how do I do that? Well, what I need to do is exercise more regularly and more intensely. Uh, I need to, to eat less and eat a better diet and, and, that, and, and, and that might be hard. But if, if the difficulty is worth it, so my clothes fit, you know, better or whatever it might be, I feel better, the ends for me justifies the means. It's just pragmatism in a good sense. But here's the thing when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the church, when it comes to ministry, someone eventually needs to ask the question, does the ends justify the means? Or are we willing to do anything and everything in order to accomplish that particular goal? And specifically, if we're talking about reaching people, which is something we're supposed to do, are we willing to do anything and everything in order to reach people? Great Commission is biblical. We see other texts complimenting it all over the place. We need to reach people with the gospel. But does that mean we'll do anything to reach people with the gospel? It's kind of a trick question because if it's really the gospel, the answer is yes. But somewhere along the line, what ends up getting blurred is whether or not it's the gospel. Put another way, are we willing, what are we willing to do to have more and more and more people as a part of our church, as a part of our denomination, as a part of our movement? What are we willing to do to have more and more people? Are we willing to do anything and everything to get more and more numbers? And now we're at the heart of this issue of pragmatism in the church. This is a huge, big deal. Please don't check out. Follow me on this. If we assume biblicity, because you know what? Jesus talks about reaching people. In fact, we're supposed to reach all people, and uh, we've got that figured out, and that's kind of all, all we know after that. And we're assuming biblicity in other areas? We are going to do anything and everything to get more people. And when someone suggests to us a marketing plan which is based upon pragmatism, we are going to find it tremendously appealing. Because we're supposed to reach people, we know that that's biblical, but we're assuming all the rest that goes into it, and now all of a sudden, we're off and going. And now we learn about how to effectively reach consumers. And now we learn the steps toward effective marketing. And now, praise be to Jesus, sarcasm, sarcasm, we have so many more people. David Wells, who was no slouch of a historian, aptly responds to this by saying, all consumers we need to remember are sovereign. Something to chew on. We get into this mentality and this mindset, a marketing mindset, a consumer mindset, finding out what people want... And then providing it so we have more recruits in our club. Notice I didn't say converts. I didn't say church on purpose. We're dealing with consumers. And consumers are always sovereign. They're telling us what they want. And we're going to give them what they want. Wells goes on to say, Furthermore, when we buy a product, we buy it for our use when we trust Christ, He is not there for our use, but we are there for His service. We commit ourselves to Him in a way that we do not commit ourselves to any product. There is a world of difference between the Lord of glory, the incarnate second person of the Godhead, and a Lexus, a vacation home, or a trip to the Bahamas. The marketing analogy blurs all of this, reducing Christ simply to a product we buy to satisfy our needs. What are destroyed along the way are the biblical doctrines of sin of the incarnation and of redemption the marketing analogy is the wrong analogy it is deeply harmful to christian faith think about what he's getting at he's dead on and thinking about the gospel you know, what what is the gospel The gospel is, God is righteous. Uh, The gospel is, you are not righteous. Uh, You deserve the just condemnation of God because you are not righteous. What about the love of God? Uh, Oh, yes, yes, yeah, that's in there too. That God loved us while we were sinners. We didn't deserve His love. Uh, Not only that, Jesus lived a perfect life. For you, because you can't and didn't. Uh, Oh, not only that, then Jesus dies on the cross, absorbing the full wrath of God that you deserve. Oh, not only that, He rises again from the dead so you can have newness of life and live a different way because apart from Him doing that, you couldn't. The good news is God does that for us through His Son. And you know what? What I just said might be good news to you, but it is horrific marketing. I mean, what are you going to do? Stand at the Clinique counter at the mall and have somebody walk by and say, man, you've got some pretty big wrinkles. Wow, you know? You're ugly. You need some of my (laughs) products. You know, you don't do that, even if it's true. And it's not a perfect analogy, but the reality is we are in the business of telling people about how great God is and what a problem that creates for them, and how great God is in solving the problem for us. That is, that is not good marketing. That does not put them in the place of sovereign. We've got we've to come to grips with this. If we assume biblicity, we're going to buy into this thing so fast. It won't even be funny. 1 Corinthians reads like it was written to address this issue because, in a sense, I think it does. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, we'll read all the way to the end and uh, make comments and observations as we go. Perhaps one of the most strategic, if not the most strategic philosophy of ministry passages uh, that I know of is this passage. It's just absolutely... It's timely, it's significant, it's eternal. It's just—it's one of the absolute best. And it will help us to, to, to be reminded of, of, of how pragmatism is not the way to go. And it will help us to give God glory and honor. I just absolutely love this passage for us as a church and for myself and hopefully for you as well. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. I promise I won't stop with every verse and every phrase, but I have to stop here, okay? Because we're going to come back to this one. Because at least see, in all bold, if you will, where he does end that verse, and he says, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. If you reverse it, you see, if he does preach some kind of Jesus in cleverness of speech, so it's more palatable, more trimmed down, softened, whatever it might be, it is made void. And you can smell the death of the church in the air. I make sure I don't do that so it's not made void. The assumption is, in a good sense, the assumption that if I did do that, it would be made void. And so, see that. He's careful to make sure what he gives is the gospel. Even notice what he's going to emphasize in this, in verse 17 again, where he says, but to preach the gospel. What I have doesn't put the consumer as sovereign, the person, the sinner as sovereign. I have something and I preach it, which is this heraldic word. I herald the message with objective authority. I am here to tell you something. I am not here to have a conversation with you, ultimately, even though there might be conversation involved. I'm not here to share, even though there might be sharing involved. What did I do? I preached the gospel. I heralded the gospel with authority. Verse 18 then says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 18 goes on to say, But to us who are being saved is the power of God. I'm not ready to keep going. I do need to stop one more time. <laughs> are you seeing what he's doing? You don't need me to commentate, really. You, you see what he's arguing. You see what's happening. He's saying, I know the cross is foolishness, but it's foolishness to a certain kind of person in 18 those who are perishing, the unbeliever. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. That's why he preaches that message. Okay? This is opposite of pragmatism, opposite of the marketing plan. I know, he's saying, when I preach the truth about Christ and God's righteousness and substitutionary atonement and all of these things, I know that people are going to say, that guy's a whack job. I know that it's foolishness. But he says, they're not my target audience. Target audience is those of us who are being saved. He's going to say more about that. This is wonderful. Verse 19 then says, For it is written. It's always a good trump card to just quote the Bible, and he does that. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Nowhere. Where is the scribe? Nowhere. Where is the debater of this age? Nowhere. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? I read two verses, so I have the right to stop. Okay. <laughs> you, see, you see what he's doing again? Well, if, if I were doing it, what I would find is the greatest scholar imaginable, and I would base all of the evangelism based upon his scholarly arguments. Paul says, uh, that's not how God does it. Well, well, well if I were doing this, Um, What what I would do is is find the greatest academician or the wisest person, at least in the eyes of the culture, so it would be more culturally relevant, the debater of this age, you know, the person who's really famous and, and everyone respects, and if I could find them, then somehow from a pragmatic vantage point, we'd be more effective. And he says at the end of the verse there in verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, that's not how God does it. That's not how God has chosen to do it. You Corinthians might want to hire the Barna Research Group to figure out how to reach more people, but you ought not do it because that's not how God does it. He does it through the preaching of His Word. Okay, 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. They had a a way they thought they could do it, but it didn't work. It won't work. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. If you look at verse 21, what's the end in view? The end in view is salvation. The salvation of those who believe. The means God uses, finding out what people want and giving it to them? No, they want wisdom, they want scribes, they want debaters of the age, they want celebrity, they want cultural relevance. The foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What God chose to do is have someone talk about Jesus, the man from Nazareth, substitutionary atonement. You know, sort of like Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Basic but offensive to the natural man, truth. Okay. Wow. Maybe we should, you know, get our deposit back from Barna. (laughs) This is amazing. Maybe we should withdraw our membership from the Willow Creek Association. We should have second thoughts about this. Pragmatism isn't the way to go at all. Preaching the gospel is the way to go. That shows life. That shows genuineness. That shows us keeping uh, the 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 cross not being void. Then verse 22 for indeed Jews ask for signs and and Greeks search for wisdom. Yeah, that is what they want. That is that when you go knock on the door and say what are you looking for in a church? This is what they say they're looking for. Don't give us the offensive stuff. Don't give us the blood. Don't give us the atonement. Verse twenty-three. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. In the light of that, the marketers say to him, "You're foolish. Don't you know what kind of impact you could be making?" Don't you know how many people you could be reaching? Don't you know what this could do, you know, for the cause? Don't you know what kind of buildings you could build? Don't you know that if you did this, you would have so many more people to send to the mission field? Don't you know, don't you know, don't you know? How can you argue with this, this blessing from God? And it's as if to say, don't you dare mistake pragmatism, which compromises the gospel for the blessing of God and for faithfulness to it. See, they're like we are. I don't want to offend someone. I mean, I just have it so in me to trim the edges off of the gospel. And, you know, just I, don't you? Am I the only one? It's like, you know, if I could just do it a little bit differently, I, I think I could get more notches on my bell. I think we would have more baptisms. I think we would have more people. We'd have more money. We'd build bigger buildings. We'd do more missions. Oh, okay, this is a good idea. What's that website again? WCA. But you got to go back to the text and not assume biblicity. And you go back to the text and you think, uh ah uh, ah. Uh. We preach this message of Christ crucified. And people are going to find it foolish. And this is no news to God. Why do we do this? Is it just an exercise in pain? Keep reading in verse 24. I love it. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's fabulous. This is absolutely amazing. And, and by the way, he's assuming in a good sense that you're not assuming biblicity. He's assuming that you, the reader, know something about the Bible so you can understand even his argument. But here we are you know, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe, and we assume biblicity. We don't know what the Bible actually teaches by what it says, and we can't even understand his argument there. You give this argument to someone who is not biblical, but they assume biblicity because somehow they're related to a church, and they don't even get it. Hopefully, lots of you get it. Well, look what he does in verse 24. But to those who are the called, that word "the called" should be jumping off the page. Okay, basic Bible interpretation class here. The called Paul uses as a strategic word. When Paul uses calling, it's always in association with that which is effectual, that which happens no matter what. It's always in association with election or predestination. Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he also justified he am i missing one glorified is next yeah the effectual calling of god and so what he's saying here for the, those of us who are not going to assume biblicity we're actually thinking about these things check the research. But in light of the research, you see how Paul uses it and he's making an appeal to people who will understand the Bible, basics of the Bible. Hey, you know what? A lot of people are going to write you off as some kind of lunatic. And then the marketers guarantee you more people and more money, and you say no, they're for sure going to write you off as a lunatic. But you've got to know something. If you preach this message message of Christ crucified, you've got to know that in verse 24 those who are the called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God and he's talking about salvation don't you love it this is abs- this is off the charts good Forget pragmatism. I'm going to preach Christ crucified to everyone I possibly could preach Christ crucified to. And I'm going to do so, yes, with zeal and with passion and with love and compassion and all of those things. But I am going to preach the truth about Christ crucified knowing full well that the results are locked in in the plan and purposes of God. And I don't need to try to fix the message. Why Why am I trying to convert the goats anyway? Right, And then give them false assurance to begin with. My target audience, I don't even know where they are. I'm preaching to everyone. But the called will see it and say, Yeah! God is amazing! Thank you for being faithful. That's what's going to happen. And to follow up with that rationale, that's just one point of reason. He then goes on to say, the next point of rationale in verse 25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? The weakness of God? (laughs) That's a contradiction in terms, on purpose. God isn't weak by definition of He's God. The weakness of God, the apparent weakness of God, you know what? The apparent weakness of God, if you're going to make a comparison, is, is strong and mighty and amazing and wonderful compared to this trivial, idiotic, Wisdom of men trying to improve upon the gospel. How stupid is that? Verse 26. For consider your calling. I know we have to hurry, but, but this is just wonderful what he does. He says to the Corinthians, who are feeling this temptation, it seems, we don't know, they're feeling this temptation to, to, to hire a research group. You know, in a sense. They're feeling this temptation that I feel and that you feel. And is, is just preaching the gospel about sin and redemption. Is it really good enough? Should we, should we do this? And he says, all right, stop. I've appealed to you on different levels. Let me just ask you to think about your own conversion. How is it that you were saved? We forget that sometimes. Verse 26, brethren... That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. It wasn't because you were so smart that you figured out smart people's arguments to believe in Jesus. Verse 27, But Jesus has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's an insult, by the way. (laughs) To shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen the things that are not so that He might nullify the things that are. Verse 29, So that no man may boast before God, but by His doing, by His doing, you see that? By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then the high point in 31, So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord... It's magnificent. How dare we try to improve upon the gospel? And as you're tempted to improve upon the gospel by watering it down or sprucing it up, please stop and think about how you were converted if you have been. I was converted because somebody stuck their finger in my eye, you know, and questioned the sincerity of my quote-unquote faith, which brought about conviction. Conviction. And by the grace of God, repentance. And then you say, you know what? That was pretty good. I didn't like it at the time. But that's how I got converted. And if you've been converted, that's how you've been converted. Somebody told you about what a sinner you are. Somebody didn't say, oh, Pat, I just want you to know that you're just such such a special person to God. And God saw, Pat, you were just, you were just doing such a good job, you know, having some struggles and... You know, we are all sinners and we, we you know, we kinda of fall short and, and God saw you, saw how special you are, and he had his son Jesus come for you. Would you like to pray to receive him now? Yeah. Might do something for my self esteem, because I think I am a pretty good person. It's not the gospel. That's a gospel falling under the condemnation of Galatians 1. It's a different gospel. Instead, somebody told me about who Jesus is and what he did and about who I am. I didn't like it. convicted me and I believe. That's what happened to you if you're a Christian. So why would you want to be a pragmatist? See, what you want is to preach the gospel so when someone is converted, they don't say, oh, Pat, you did such a good job. Or, you know what, I am so special. This isn't a wonderful, I'm a good person. Jesus died for me. Instead, they're going to say, God, you are amazing. You know what, I heard this message and I thought it was utterly Ridiculous. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't what I was looking for. And you saved me by your power. You did this. Oh, you are amazing, God. That's the idea here. This is no-brainer. This is simple. This is clear. And it's so very helpful. If I can just encourage you, as you look at verse 17 again, and have it drilled in your mind when it comes to your means... That you would preach the gospel, proclaim the truth about Jesus, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That is what we want because we want to live to see another day as a church. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our opportunity to talk about these things that matter so much. Lord, we want to make an impact in this world. We want to see you do great things. We do want to love people enough to tell them the truth about your son. More importantly than that, we want to love you enough to rightly represent your message so that people will be reconciled to you. That is our desire, that is our passion. Thank you for what you're doing in this world seems like so much is is chaotic, and at the same time, there's so much great opportunity. So help us to look to You for guidance and direction. Help us to not claim to be biblical without actually spending time in Your Word. And Lord, please, see fit to give us life for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.